Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a supply issue is slowing down the COVID-19 vaccination process in Hamilton. Hamilton's Director of Emergency Center, Paul Johnson, talks to us about that. The pandemic is causing a mental health crisis with today's youth driving more and more to reach out for mental health support. How can we assist them? Well, we've got some solutions to that. And it's Donald Trump's final day in office, but the fear of violence grows at the U.S. Capitol before tomorrow's inauguration. We'll give you a full report. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to get into the vaccine issue right now because it's a story that uh, that broke earlier this week, and we're very concerned about the numbers on this. Uh, the city has now been directed, meaning the city of Hamilton, uh, by the province uh, to only continue vaccinating resident staff and essential caregivers in long-term care homes and high-risk retirement homes. Medical Officer of Health Dr. Elizabeth Richardson tries to explain this to us. The only first doses that will go forward are ones for the long-term care homes and high-risk retirement homes. Any of the other plans that we had uh, put in place, which was specifically to go forward with all of the retirement homes, those have had to be put on pause. All right, and a great deal of concern about this because I think a lot of us, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the surveys that have been done nationally indicate that the overwhelming majority of us want to roll up our sleeves and get this vaccine. We want to get on with this process, but it's not happening uh, as quickly as a lot of us would like it to. Let's bring Paul Johnson into the conversation. Paul, of course, is the Director of Emergency Services for the uh, City of Hamilton during the pandemic. Uh, Paul, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to be with you, Bill. Let's clarify right off the bat here that this problem with vaccines and, and, and what seems to be a slowing down of the process here uh, is, is not of your doing, not of the province's doing. It's, it's really a matter of supply, isn't it? It's absolutely 100% about supply and about a decision made um, by Pfizer in terms of having to scale back uh, a distribution uh, to, to many parties and, and Canada included on that. So, so yes, uh, you know, we were getting into a groove. Uh, lots of uh, needles going into arms, and in fact, uh, you know, close to 15,000 uh, individuals uh, in retirement homes and, and healthcare workers vaccinated to date. So, lots of good things happening in terms of our ability to deliver. And these are the things that are going to happen. I, you know, I guess in these early stages, as we wait for the distribution of it, that uh, you'll see these hiccups along the way. But it, uh, it did take a little bit of window of the sales, as I say. We were getting into a nice groove, and Dr. Richardson and her crew, and Rob McIsaac and his crew at Hamilton Health Sciences, were just doing some great work. And they well, continue to, Bill. It's fair to say. Oh yeah, you know, we're absolutely. still on track around the long-term care and. And those parts, which, quite frankly, I know a lot of people would be saying, you know, great, I'm glad we're not having to stop that as well. But it is uh, disappointing that we're not able to start to go a bit further. Well, it's got to be frustrating for you guys and, and for Dr. Richardson and, and, and everybody who's involved in this program. Because, well, it was just a week or so ago, Paul, that when you were on the program, you were talking about actually moving on to the next phase. Uh, because things were going as uh, probably better than expected in many situations, especially in the Hamilton area. Uh, and for the province to, to put the stop sign up here and just say, oh, slow down, everybody, uh, it's, it's well, it, when you have to hit the brakes like this, it, it's, it's not good news for anybody. Uh, but it, it's not catastrophic at the same hand. I mean, you, you guys have had to pivot I don't know how many times over the last 12 months uh, when it comes to dealing with this pandemic, and this is just one more situation. Yeah, exactly. We've got the ankles uh, fairly well taped, Bill, because uh, the cuts <laughs> we have to take are, are, are there. You know, I like my sports analogies. And, um, you know, this is serious, but it is 
uh, it is a, a relatively short period of time. And, you know, to be honest, the, the vast majority of Hamiltonians, if they think this is really going to affect their timing on it, uh, nothing suggests it does. For the vast majority of us, this is coming uh, late spring into the summer and into the fall, perhaps. So uh, those those timelines, um, you know, everything we're hearing is that they're unaffected. This is a, a moment in time, though, that, um, you know, it does carry some frustration. Maybe disappointment is a better word, Bill, that we really felt that getting this out to some of these um, at-risk populations, both from a staff perspective and a resident perspective, were so critical. Uh, this really is the way that we can start to see a turning of the tide in, the, in terms of this pandemic. And, and so any slowdown is disappointing. But the good news is, is that there's no indication this throws us off the overall uh, plan, which is uh, that through this year, uh, vaccines will be delivered to every Canadian who wants it. What's interesting about this, too, and I think it's very important, Paul, that we maybe add some perspective to this. Uh, I don't know if you caught it, but there was an interview on the weekend uh, on CTV uh, with Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the now renowned uh, expert in in pandemics and the U.S. response to this. And uh, he was talking with uh, Evan Solomon on CTV. And and essentially what Dr. Fauci said is, he says, the the timelines are pretty much the same between Canada and the U.S. There's all this stuff about, oh, they're way ahead of us. And he says it's going to be summertime before most of the population is going to have access to the vaccines in the states as well so i mean everybody seems to be on the same boat here they are and you know you can look at other you know you can look at some jurisdictions and maybe they're a little ahead but then you know we uh we were you know starting to accelerate some things as well and so i think overall the message is the same across north america and it certainly is the case in canada where for you know again the vast majority of of hamiltonians of ontarians of canadians uh, this is going to be, uh, you know, into the summer and, and potentially into the fall. And that was always the plan, and that will continue to be uh, the way it works. And as I say, there's nothing that Dr. Richardson and her team um, is suggesting, nor is she hearing from the province, that that throws us off that overall timeline. It's going to be these little pieces in between as things happen, and, and maybe it could be a technical uh, piece around how the, uh, the, the the IT program is working. It might be about supply. There will be these moments as we roll this out, and, and that is not to uh, belittle the seriousness of it and the disappointment, but it is to say that, that these things are to be expected. And I think overall, people should only worry if it starts to be, well, now we can't hit the 2021 goals. Now we're deep into 2022. That would be serious, Bill. Uh, but uh, nothing suggests that we're outside of that now. And and contrary to what some people have been putting on social media, there are still vaccines available. In other words, uh, the program has been scaled back, but it hasn't been stopped. You're still uh, issuing first doses, I guess, now, but you're, you're focusing once again on the, the most vulnerable, the caregivers and uh, the staff at, at long-term care facilities. Yeah, it's it's really about not going to, you know, broader, as Dr. Richardson said, you know, we won't be able to do all retirement homes. I uh, won't be getting, able to get into other congregate settings or start to look at, at those. Um, and it's just that we're not able to look at those in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll get there. And, and the expectation is that uh, there might be larger orders coming to make up for this uh, pause in, in getting a volume that was expected. So there's a bit of a catch-up uh, uh, hope that uh, happens as we get closer to the end of February and the beginning of March. And so I think you know, we're, we're very much on target for that. Dr. Richardson has, uh, you know, told the community and, and we're still on target that uh, this week, all of the long-term care uh, homes, residents who want it and, and staff who want it uh, are going to be vaccinated. And the great news is from a resident perspective, uh, you know, the, the compliance and the, the uptake on the vaccine is in the 90% uh, 
um, close to 100%, to be honest with you. So that's great news on the resident front and growing numbers of staff getting vaccinated because now it's a little easier sometimes the vaccine's coming to them uh, rather than them having to go to a fixed site for it. So those are the good news pieces that are, that are uh, you know, continue to happen and, and some of the most vulnerable and some of the most affected uh, by this pandemic um, are still on track, as I say, in the next couple of days to have all of that completed. And then we just, we wait a little bit and then we get back into it. Uh, deeper into February. And also, of course, the second dose bill. That yeah, I was going to ask so you about back that. Into that. So again, it's, it, as you say, it's not that the, the well is run dry. It's that we have to make sure that, that we're doing this well and we're giving people the protection that they expect from the vaccine. Uh, and that's where we're getting into second dose uh, delivery already for some of those who received it in December. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because I, you know, I know that the, the the clinic you just talked about here, Health Sciences Clinic, uh, the fixed vaccination site is uh, still operational, as is the mobile unit, uh, for second doses. But there's been some change with the, the the allocation of the second dose, Paul. Maybe we could talk about that. I know that when the vaccine was being uh, delivered, first of all, back just before Christmas, uh, they were saying you know you get one shot and then 28 days later you get your second dose and, and you should be good for the next little while. Uh, they've changed the time frame for that now, and that's this is not something that, that the city has done or the province has done and this is really done i guess with the uh, uh the blessing and with the input from the, the medical community that it's been extended now to uh, 42 days uh, i guess for that second dose and uh, uh i you i'm, not, I'm going to assume and i'll get you to explain this to our listeners that, that this was not done arbitrarily and that the, the medical profession says yeah it's still safe it's, it's still okay to be within that time frame yeah, I mean, all communities are receiving the advice and the input from uh, from science tables and the the central approach to around vaccine in Ontario. And and yeah, there's been the the ability to extend uh, when that second dose happens. It doesn't mean that 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 will always be the case. In fact, uh, many people are booked in for their second doses. And my understanding is that the, those schedules are being followed. So uh, many would be getting it under the old time frames. But it's just a, a recognition that. You know, the science continues to evolve on this and, and we follow the best science possible and making sure that we can, uh, you know, the team here can vaccinate the most people possible. And I know that if Dr. Richardson had any concerns about the direction that, uh, you know, she'd be raising those and and uh, and doing what she needs to do. So, you know, we still feel confident with where we are. Um, I'm really pleased to hear that, that we're going to have all those long-term care facilities attended to from a vaccination perspective this week. I think that's a milestone that we shouldn't um, lose sight of in the midst of maybe a bit of a disappointment in terms of the volume over the next few weeks. Paul, we've talked about the the whole thing moving around here and, and the changes that are occurring. And, and the time frame, of course, as you mentioned, it hasn't changed significantly. I mean, for, for most of us in the in the population, as you mentioned, it's going to be late spring or into the summer before uh, we get vaccinated. And I know the goal has been hopefully by Labor Day, uh, most everybody who wants one is going to get one. And, and we're hoping it's going to be, as you mentioned, around the, uh, the upper 90% percentile that are going to go into this. Uh, but there's some good other factors that are going to change here. I mean, we're talking about the Pfizer vaccine and, of course, Moderna. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is, is probably going to to be available uh, come springtime as well, and that's that's going to change the game a little bit. It's a one-dose uh, vaccine, but uh, again, another company that's supplying like this has got to alleviate some of the pressure. It is, you know, AstraZeneca is also in the mix there as yeah, well. So, yeah. uh, you know, there are going to be uh, potentially other vaccines that come uh, come online, and so you're quite right. Right now, we we really have two. And, um, you know, we were expecting certain volumes of the Pfizer vaccine on top of some Moderna, and, and that's not going to occur. But as this thing starts to roll forward, the expectation is 
uh, certainly that uh, Health Canada will be approving additional vaccines. And, and you're right, uh, what their schedule is, what their, uh, you know, the, whether it's a single dose, whether it's two, two doses, um, all those things will continue to change. And that's why it's really important that all the logistics get worked out early on. And uh, because it's really, you know, with multiple vaccines out there as well, it's, it's critical we know that you know, Bill Kelly got X vaccine, um, so we understand whether you need a second dose, when that second dose happens, and things like that. So, I know that this uh, early part of the rollout is also to work out those kinks and those, uh, uh, you know, situations in terms of how we make sure we have a good database of, of who's received vaccine and and what the next steps are for folks. So, lots will change as we mm-hmm. move through this. As Dr. Richardson continues to tell me, it's really hard to put out a sheet of here's the facts of everything that's going to happen for the next year because <laughs> we don't know it. And yeah. again, that shouldn't that shouldn't worry anybody. Uh, the reality is that things will change, and as things change, uh, that will be communicated clearly uh, by experts in our community. And and again, you know, worry about extra vaccines coming on shouldn't be there. They'll be they'll be tested in terms of going through the protocols as they always are, and and our folks will give the best advice around it. And even these slight changes in advice is really, as you say, done with lots of people looking at it and ensuring that um, that the right stuff is happening. So, I, you know, we need to keep the confidence high in the community. And these little glitches along the way, uh, Bill, as I say, as long as they're not taking us off, off our overall goal, which none of the information we have suggests that it is, uh, then, then I think Hamiltonians and Ontarians can still feel confident that we have a, a good plan in place throughout 2021. It's really the, it, and it's what has to happen. Uh, so in the meantime, we need to do what we can to stop the spread of the virus and continue to uh, hope for an accelerated approach to vaccine. Uh, by the way, just for the uh, the record, I, I, Bill Kelly did not get the vaccine for anybody who may have taken. Okay, I, it was just an example <laughs> yeah, Paul was giving. Okay, the there's nobody jumping the queue here. Okay, let's let's be clear about that. No, no. But it, but and, in the meantime, and... Paul, in the meantime, uh, we still have a role to play. I know there have been some uh, recorded instances of people that have actually received both doses of the vaccine, uh, and a couple of them uh, instances that we've read about anyway have said that they still contracted COVID-19. Uh, but as the doctors have reminded us, uh, the vaccines uh, and the inoculation does not mean you not going to get it what it does is it 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 reduces the impact that the virus could have on you uh we still have to do the masks we have to do the social distancing uh we have to adhere to all the rules though hand washing of course uh and and then there's this issue of the lockdown and i want to talk to you about that because we've gone through the first weekend of that now and uh what we're shooting for here of course is a reduction in the number of new cases and uh how are we doing on that i mean have you got stats on that it's i know it's early days it's supposed to be a 28 day lockdown but what are you seeing so far so the impact of of some of the measures uh, you know we hope this is a trend that continues the cases are um are down when you look at our cases per hundred thousand um they're it's slowly dropping what was really good news is uh, that our reproductive number is now below one and that can bounce around so again yeah. you know we're waiting for trends on this thing but uh, there does seem to be a, a, a tailing off for a number of days in terms of the the average number of cases and that's uh, great news so dr richardson yesterday was uh, you know, is showing some cautious optimism around that. And in Hamilton, we've been in a pretty significant, we've been in the gray zone. We've been sort of locked down since uh, a week before the holidays. And, mm-hmm. and so I think maybe some of this is happening. We're now 14 days out from, uh, more than 14 days out from New Year's and, and well 14 days out from the holidays. So uh, hopefully this is a trend that continues, Bill. But one thing I would say is that it only will continue if people 
uh, keep doing what we need to, to, to do. And, and that is keep your distance, wear a mask, almost in all circumstances now. And really the advice is that uh, you should have your mask on all the time. Um, maybe if you're wandering around in a field on your own, you can take it off. But other than that, if you think you might come within two meters of somebody, even for a brief period of time, why not take that extra layer of protection for everybody? And you hope that the other person is taking that layer of protection as well. So uh, we are, you know, as I say, cautiously optimistic that maybe this is a trend and we hope it is. But, um, you know, we're going to need a, a lot more data before we can start to say that the numbers are coming down in a dramatic fashion. Well, the old phrase, one day at a time, I guess, has never been more relevant, but uh, the numbers are encouraging so far. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks so much for this. I know how busy you and your staff are to uh, keep an eye on what's going on here. We really appreciate the time. We'll stay in touch. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Services for the City and the Pandemic uh, Response. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we've talked about the ramifications of dealing with this uh, virus and the pandemic and the lockdowns. We talk about it from an economic standpoint, certainly from a health standpoint, but we rarely talk about the mental health aspects of this. And uh, the numbers are shocking when you see the impact that this has had. Uh, more and more young people especially are reaching out for support amid this pandemic. It comes at a time when mental health support is top of mind amid self-isolation and quarantines, things like stay-at-home orders. Global's Brianna Carnegie has more details about this. Kids Help Phone describes the impact of COVID on its volumes as massive. The number of kids reaching out over phone or text has more than doubled year over year, with now over 4.5 million connections made. It says the top issues young people are reaching out about include anxiety and stress, relationships and depression. School, isolation and suicide also made the list. President and CEO of the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, Alex Munter, tweets, it's disturbing but not surprising to hear of the increase in distress calls. He says, especially since schools closed, they're also seeing the impacts at CHEO and across mental health agencies. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Yeah, when you see some of these numbers, it is really staggering. And we need to talk about this, and we're going to right now. Joining us to talk about uh, this very important subject is uh, Dr. Paolo Perez, who is a psychologist, the clinical director of the Child and Youth Mental Health Program at McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. I'm looking at some stats here from Kids Help Phone, and I know that uh, when the Prime Minister, almost a year ago, I guess now, uh, was talking about some of the government funding programs that they were going to put in place, Doctor, to try to help. He mentioned Kids Help Phone, and a lot of people said, really? Uh, Kids Help Phone received 1.8 million calls uh, in the year 2020. Uh, after the pandemic hit, that number has jumped to 4.2 million from 1.8. Uh, we're in a crisis situation here, aren't we? We absolutely are, and those of us who, who work in the mental health sector are, are not surprised that this is happening because we're living through, you know, some unprecedented times and, and you know, coping with stressors that, um, you know, are lasting a long time and multiple stressors that, uh, that we are not surprised is having an impact on, you know, child development and mental health for sure. You know, there's been, I think, uh, an increased uh, uh, concern about this and, and a discussion about mental health over the last couple of years and, you know, and a number of different agencies. There, there are days that are set aside for this, a number of corporations are getting it. Uh, and as much progress as we might have been made, making over the last couple of years, uh, we seem to have hit the pause button with the pandemic because basically we're not, we're not seeing each other as much as we used to. And, and that, that human relationship, those interrelationships have really suffered, haven't they? 
Absolutely. And, you know, uh, one of the things I think we're very proud of, uh, proud of at McCaster Children's Hospital is we've really been able to, to move the care that we do provide to virtual care. And for a lot of youth, you know, that is working. And for some youth, uh, virtual care hasn't been ideal. And, and we have resumed over the last few months uh, with, with infection control protocols, you know, some in-person services as we really try to meet the needs of the young people. And it's inherent is that part of mental health care is the relationship. Um, and so we know that the therapeutic relationships we have with young people are going to make a difference to treatment. But also we encourage, you know, children and youth and families as well to really work hard to make connections with their social supports, whether they be, you know, informal supports like their own family members and friends who maybe they can't visit in person, but who they can connect with, you know, over video or phone, for example. Um, as well as formal supports, you know, such as um, access to, to formal mental health treatment. How do you access and how have you pivoted uh, with, with the clinic, uh, doctor, over the last little while? I mean, you know, we, we talked about kids' help phone, and, and if somebody actually does reach out, uh, that's great. That opens the door, and then you, you, know, you can begin a relationship and, and talk about problems. But the other element, of course, are people that don't reach out, that are afraid to or don't think that they can can do that they just you know or they think they can handle everything on their own how how do you reach that group it's an excellent uh, excellent question and i think um just even having this conversation today raises the profile of of mental health needs you know when we talk about healthcare, care we're where, you know, physical health comes to mind much more readily, I think, than, than mental health. And we suspect that, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of children and youth um, and adults probably who were suffering in silence and, you know, figured that they were just going to do their best to kind of get through things alone. And that's, you know, that's what happens, I think, oftentimes in our North American society is we have kind of individualistic um you know, uh, goals around having to figure things out on our own and being able to succeed on our own. And here's the thing, this is a team sport. And so the reality is that, um, you know, reaching out for supports is really important. So being able to have the conversations in different forums as we are today, you know, as we see uh, in the media and having conversations, you know, with the relationships that you have currently in your life, with your friends and your family as a starting point can be very, very important, as well, of course, as reaching out to primary care physicians, such as, you know, family doctors and pediatricians. Anytime that, you know, we encourage people to raise the conversation with their, you know, personal contacts, and then, you know, there are, you know, lines like the Kids Help Phone, like Coast Hamilton, for example, and we have Contact Hamilton, which is, you know, our single point of access agency, within the city of Hamilton that is ready to receive phone calls and to help direct children and families to the care that they need. Doctor, is there a better understanding, and I mean societally right now, about understanding about youth concerns and problems? I, I, and because let's face it, when we're in a situation like we are and have been for the last year now, uh, we get wrapped up in our own situation. You know, how am I going to make the mortgage payment? You know, I'm not making as much money or I'm not employed now. I was a year ago. All sorts of things like this. Uh, and, and you may say, well, come on, my, you know, my 16-year-old, they don't have those same problems, you know, but they have their own set of problems. I mean, they're, you know, we tend to forget a little bit about that and how those lives and, and, and their environment is being impacted by this as well. Are we, are we, are we opening up and, and we are keeping those lines of communication open to have those dialogues? I think, you know, that's, that's an excellent point. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes adults and caregivers, 
you know, their, you know, one of their primary goals is to, is to protect children, you know, from stressors. And so, yeah. you know, adults are thinking, you know, we're, we're doing our best. We're the ones paying the bills. Like, this is nothing for you to worry about. This is for me to worry about as an adult. But the reality is that children live in context. They live in families. They live in schools. And so, you know, they can't help but experience the impacts of, you know, financial stressors and, um, you know, and other stressors, you know, that everyone else ex- is experiencing. And I think children and youth um, are at a stage of development where they're learning to cope with stressors. So they're developing skills that maybe many adults have had a chance to develop. Whereas, with you know, when you're young, you need help to develop those skills because they're modeled by parents and caregivers. And, um, and you, you know, there are, there are stressors that, um, that we're all experiencing that are common to all of us but also some unique stressors that are unique to the fact that someone is at a particular age and stage of development. They're a lot more cognizant and, and aware, and I'm, I'm talking about kids of all ages, uh, about what goes on in a, in a home environment, especially now since it, we tend to be in lockdown and maybe we're spending a lot more time with each other. Uh, kids are aware if there are financial problems in the house, and it, it would, that they notice changes like that. Is 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 it is it important for parents to have those discussions and, and not necessarily to share the stressors, but to understand the lay of the land? Cause, you know, because they're thinking about it. They see it happening. But if there's no dialogue there, they're going to start to distress themselves about this because they feel they have no control over that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's about finding that, that sweet spot where, you know, parents and caregivers share enough information. Um, you know, oftentimes when we try to protect kids from stressors like financial stressors, um, you know, we think that not talking about it and not raising the issue may be the way to go. But the reality is it ends up being in the air. You know, kids are sensitive and, and they see that things are different. They see that, you know, parents are stressed and parents are humans. You know, this is part of the human condition is to be able to cope with stressors, to be able to, be able to reassure children, to be real about, yes, this is, this is a, something that we are experiencing and that we have to cope with. But to give kids enough information so that, um, you know, they can feel you know, reassured and, and feel like they can have authentic relationships with their parents so that when they, too, are experiencing stressors, they, too, can communicate with their parents about them. Doctor, we can't have a discussion about stress and, and about kids and, and the pressures they're feeling right now without talking about some of the resulting uh, problems that can come as a result of this. And one of those are addictions, of course. Uh, and, and, and it's not unique to, to youth, by the way. I mean, adults are in the same predicament right now, too. Uh, the more we get locked up, the, the more that we're kept away from other people. I mean, we are social beings by, by nature. Uh, you start getting into things like uh, like food addictions, uh, eating improperly. Uh, you know, it could be addictions to alcohol, to, to chemicals, any number of different things. Are the chances of that increasing significantly because of, of the pandemic and the lockdown? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've certainly heard some reports in the media that, that would suggest that. And, and I would agree that it's not certainly just, um, you know, youth that may be struggling with that, but, you know, adults as well. You know, substance use is, is one way to cope. And oftentimes it's not the recommended way to cope. Uh, but sometimes, you know, depending on kind of what's accessible in one's home, um, it can feel like a quick fix, you know, and, and we know that, uh, you know, substances can have uh, negative impacts on child development. So certainly it's not the way that we would encourage folks to cope. But there definitely, I've certainly heard reports and, and clinically within the work that we're doing, 
you know, we are hearing uh, about a little bit more increased substance use for sure. Well, we certainly know, for instance, I mean, statistically, we know that alcohol sales are up considerably. Uh, and that's not just a youth problem, but, I mean, it indicates that maybe people are using that as a crutch. And I know, you know, a lot of people will joke about, you know, I put on 10 or 15 pounds during the pandemic, you know, uh, and, and that, that may not be of any significance, but it also might also point towards, uh, you know, overindulging and doing things of this nature, you know, because we're around all the time. So it, I, I would imagine those are discussions that we need to have with, with our kids to, and, and be aware and look for, for signs that may indicate that there's something going on. Well, absolutely. And, you know, the isolation, the frustration, the boredom, the lack of structure, you know, we all need to cope with these. And, and you know, we're also, um, you know, I'm going to suggest a lot more, um uh, kind of like sitting still and not getting as much exercise. Mm-hmm. And that is something that maybe, you know, families can, can think about doing. It's maybe not necessarily very easy in the cold weather, but how do I, you know, increase physical activity as well? Because we know that physical activity is going to have benefits for anxiety and for mood. So even just to, to have a change of scenery, to go for a walk, of course, respecting, you know, public health, directives and and the lockdown restrictions but you know that is something that we can all do for ourselves and that families maybe can commit to doing for each other Um, anybody that lives together with someone else for long enough is you know is going to get frustrated with the other person and people are going to get sick of each other and we know that uh, you know that you know people have had um, lots of time together uh, which in some ways is good and in some ways you know not so good but it could be something that families consider in terms of um, varying the you know, what I would call the activity diet is to, you know, try and diversify the kinds of things that family members are doing and, and increasing exercise is something that we would really recommend. Uh, how's staffing situation with the increase like this? And I, I was just looking at some of the elders here. They, uh, this, this is the Ottawa area, but I'm sure the, the numbers are very relevant to what's happening in other communities as well. A 63% increase in, uh, in eating disorder uh, uh, people uh, that have come forward and say we need help with this uh, and, uh, and and some of the other things we've talked about about substance abuse and depression simply depression because of the way uh, is this having an impact in, in, on, on staffing for, for, for instance for your facility at the at the hospital I think it, uh, I mean our in our, our staffing um, obviously has has remained stable in other words it's not like we've had an increase of staffing but we do Definitely, we're very aware of increasing wait lists. And, um, you know, I meet with our community partner agencies who also provide mental health care within the city of Hamilton. And uh, we meet regularly and work really hard to try and uh, increase care and, and make sure that families get what they need. And we're all reporting an increase in wait lists. And I think as frontline clinicians, you know, we're aware um, that people are waiting for service and that need service. And that can be a stressor for us as clinicians as well, because we want to do the best that we can and we have, you know, limited resources. So, um, you know, the conversations continue uh, in our community and between community partners to try and meet family and children's needs. And we definitely encourage families to not be dissuaded by things like wait lists and really to reach out so that they, they get the care that they need. And in fact, if uh, somebody's listening to this and feels maybe it is time to do that and to reach out, uh, obviously the kids' help phone is one of those ways. But uh, the, the family doctor is usually the usual portal for references and things of that nature to at least get the ball rolling. Is that the best way to go? 
the family doctor is is a great way to start for sure. Um, and then the other thing that I would recommend is, you know, within the Hamilton area, is calling contact Hamilton directly. And that actually doesn't require connecting with the family doctor as a first step. Of course, you know, family doctors and contact Hamilton and our mental health agencies are all partners in care. And we work together to, to do, you know, what is needed for, for children and families. So, you know, we'd like to think that any of those starting points are good starting points. But it is important to remind families that they can call Contact Hamilton directly and have a conversation around uh, accessing more formal mental health care. But Contact Hamilton is also, you know, aware of other community resources uh, that may be helpful that are not necessarily the formal uh, treatment system for mental health. Uh, similar programs, of course, in, in London and, and other communities that are listening to our program today, too. But uh, the, the key here is to reach out. Uh, even though you may be stuck at home for the next little while, there are people there that are willing to help. Doctor, uh, thank you so much for the time today. It's a very, very important topic, and I just wanted to, to shine some light on this and let people know that, uh, that as, as lonely as they might feel and as frustrated they might feel, uh, they're not alone. There are people out there that can help, including uh, the great work that you and your staff are doing. Thanks so much for this today. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Take care. Dr. Paolo Perez from uh, the Mental Health Program at Master Children's Hospital in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. About uh, 25 hours away from the inauguration of Joe Biden as he becomes the next president of the United States and, of course, Kamala Harris, uh, the next vice president. But, uh, uh, well, Washington is on edge and has been really since the 6th of January in anticipation of this, and uh, it's a much different inauguration for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, joining us to talk about uh, what's happening down in D.C. and setting the scene, uh, Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. On an average day, how many checkpoints do you go through, Reggie, as you try to do your job on a daily basis and, and get from point A to point B? Washington's essentially in lockdown mode, isn't it? Yeah, look, there's a, Washington has essentially been walled off from the rest of the uh, police checkpoints are just simply not a thing in the district unless you're trying to walk into a federal building like the U.S. Capitol. This morning on our drive into the office, you know, it's a 10 minute drive from home. We had to go through a National Guard secure checkpoint, then a D.C. police checkpoint. Then we had to get the car sniffed with a sniffer dog from Secret Service. Then we had to walk through a Secret Service checkpoint, a secondary Secret Service checkpoint just to walk into the, the office this morning. So the, the security is immense, the security is tight, and the tensions are... And, and you're, you, you're guys with credentials, I mean, but I, I guess that doesn't mean much to anybody these days. I mean, they're just going to say, I don't care who you are, uh, I, you know, you're going to go through this series, and it gets, it's, it's the new normal, at least it is until uh, the inauguration is over, I would think. Yeah, absolutely it is. There's sometimes you have to do some wheeling and dealing with some of the officers that are standing there because we have to remember, too, 25,000 National Guard troops in Washington, D.C. Not all of them are from here. Not all of them may understand where you stay when you're trying to get to, you know, Office A or Office B. Uh, so you have to kind of explain to them uh, and hope that they're just going to play ball uh, to let you go through. Because, you know, at the end of the day, look, media is trying to do the job of covering the inauguration and covering the security situation here. But there are still 700,000 people that live in the district as well that are also having their lives upended by the sheer fact that, sure, they may not be right downtown at the Capitol, but there's a fear that the rest of the city could potentially become a soft target.
Uh, and that's an interesting sidebar to this too. I mean, I, I, we know, of course, that after the the, the storming of the Capitol, uh, you know, the, the troops are called in from places like Maryland and surrounding states, uh, and even Delaware, not too far away. Of course, Joe Biden's place. Uh, but Amy Klobuchar was on, uh, I guess, it was on CNN last night uh, talking about this. And I guess there's actually National Guard from Minnesota, a whole bunch of states who may not know Washington that well. What's what's the attitude there? Are are, are the people that you see on a daily basis in uniform, Reggie? Are they nervous? Are they uh, on on or is this just part of the job? You know, it's interesting, Bill. This morning when we were going through uh, the third or fourth Secret Service checkpoint, uh, you know, I made a comment to uh, the people that I was standing with just about how nice everybody has been. And I think it's just this moment of they understand the magnitude of the, of the threat. They understand the kind of crisis that Washington is under right now. Uh, and they're simply trying to make it as easy as they can for the people that are tasked with coming down here because they have no other choice to. Uh, and they're not really, you know, putting up any hostilities. I can point out that uh, during one of those checkpoints today, they've had to bring in members from, from the Transportation uh, uh, Security Agency, from the TSA, to be able to help process these people through. So that's also kind of adding to the conversation. This really is kind of more, it, it's, like, it's like a coffee table book when you try to go through these checkpoints because these officers, you know, it's a learning experience for them. And it's also something they may never have to do again for the rest of their career. And as much as, as things are tightly being walked, locked down right now, uh, I, I suppose, you know, in the capital itself, Reg, they, they're, they're still trying to carry on business as usual. I mean, the confirmation hearings for the, for the Biden nominees for cabinet, I, I guess they're ongoing. Uh, so they are trying to get as much business done as possible, but it's, it's got to be very difficult for everybody involved. Yeah, look, well, and you're right. There are Senate confirmation hearings for the Biden administration taking place right now, which means that day-to-day business is taking place, you know, just a couple of hundred feet away from where the inauguration bowl is, from where the rehearsals were taking place yesterday. But we also have to remember the U.S. Capitol is still an active criminal uh, crime scene. Uh, and there are still people there trying to piece together what happened on January 6th. So, you know, there's a lot of business whether it's legislative, whether it's investigative, uh, taking place inside the U.S. Capitol. This really is the closing of one of the most tumultuous political times in U.S. history and the dawn of a new political era that really is going to get off by walking on eggshells. We knew that uh, this was going to be a much different inauguration. Whomever was going to get uh, sworn in as the president, and obviously we know it's going to be Joe Biden. Uh, and that's because of the pandemic and the things that have gone on. But, I mean, the events, of course, of January 6th and the subsequent events, I guess, uh, have really changed this. And, and it, this is going to be a much different-looking uh, inauguration, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Number one, the crowds are simply not going to be there. You know, the stands are in place. There are still bleachers. There are still chairs out there but at a much smaller level than we've ever seen in inaugurations past, because there are still going to be VITs and dignitaries that come to watch this event take place. But when Joe Biden is looking down the National Mall, he will not see the faces of people looking back at him. Instead, you'll see hundreds of thousands of American flags that have been planted in the ground uh, to symbolize the people who can't be here because of the security threat, because of COVID-19, underscoring the task at hand for Joe Biden as he is taking the oath of office, trying to bring together a country that has been ravaged by a health crisis, that has been torn apart uh, politically by a divisive president, that has been, uh, you know, now scared into, you know, where they are because of the security threats that are going on across the country. These are the things that he'll be looking out at instead of listening to the thunderous roars of applause for winning the election. 
in past uh, inaugurations, of course, uh, the, the president elects, or you know, if, and sometimes it going into the second term, the, the sitting presidents have had at least a little bit of say into how the ceremony is going to go. Maybe have their own personal touch to it. Uh, security forces are pretty much running everything now, aren't they, Reggie? I know that Biden himself had talked a little while ago, perhaps taking the train into Washington, as he's done for many, many years, of course, when he was a senator, because uh, he went home every night to his kids. Uh, but I guess security officials will sit down and doing that, Mr. President-elect. Uh, you know, the, the, the security just is, is not there for that sort of thing. So uh, he's basically being sold, look, this is where you're going to have to stay, and this is what you're going to have to do. Yeah, the option was basically given you can go inside or you can go outside, but everything else is really under uh, a kind of a tight hand of the security and law enforcement. You know, he's still getting his personal touch by uh, some of the A-list stars that are going to be taking yeah. part, like Lady Gaga or Justin Timberlake. But at the end of the day, the, the kind of, you know, the nuts and bolts of the inauguration are in the hands of the inauguration committee, which are also being tied now by uh, the investigation into the storming of the Capitol and by law enforcement. So it's going to be incredibly pared down. We also need to point out, Bill, the other difference to this inauguration is the fact that there is going to not be a predecessor standing on stage with Joe Biden, uh, predecessor in being the immediate predecessor. Donald Trump will not be in attendance at this inauguration for the first time, you know, in more than 150 years. Uh, there's another, I guess, another long list of traditions, as you've been reporting, Reggie, that aren't going to happen either. Uh, the traditional uh, meeting of the, the incoming president and the outgoing president uh, at the White House. And, uh, and there's usually, as I understand it, uh, another tradition where the first lady would actually invite the new first lady in uh, to kind of give them the tour of the place and what it looks like. Uh, that has not happened and apparently is not going to happen. And it's really a shame because we have to go back four years when Donald Trump won the presidency and he walked up to the front steps uh, of the White House and was greeted by Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, the victims of a horrendous, uh, you know, birtherism scandal that was being perpetuated by Donald Trump at one point in his life. Uh, and they welcomed him with open arms. They gave him the walkthrough. They sat down with him and offered him any kind of help that he may need to kind of get the administration off and running. That is not the same courtesy we're going to see from the president. He's simply going to take off tomorrow morning. He's going to head down to Florida, uh, and he's going to try to ride out the remaining hours of his presidency completely out of sight. Bill, the other thing to watch for here is uh, Donald Trump will be president until 11.59.59 tomorrow morning. He will have nuclear codes with him when he's in Florida, and there are now logistical challenges to try and ensure that his codes are deactivated and Joe Biden's codes for the nuclear football are activated in the few seconds that are going to exist between 11.59 and 12.01. Yeah, this is because of what, what Trump wants to do. This is this is really problematic, isn't it? I mean, traditionally, uh, and again, going past as you mentioned, Reggie, with a lot of the other inaugurations, uh, as you say, the outgoing president would be there on the Capitol steps for the swearing in, uh, and then with the permission of the new president, they would use Air Force One to get to wherever they wanted to go. Uh, George W. Bush did that, of course. Well, they, they used the helicopter, of course, and then Air Force One to get to to, to where they wanted to go at the present time. Uh, Trump is leaving without permission because he is still technically the president as you mentioned until noon tomorrow uh, but he had also talked about having his own ceremony uh, rolling a red carpet out uh, he talked about having a 21 gun salute a military salute and actually having a flyby by some jets uh, I, i'm assuming that's been kiboshed well look the conversations are still taking place as to what's oh. going to happen for president trump uh you know he does want to be able to get on air force one when it has the moniker still of air force one because he still will be in power this is a president bill for the last four years that we have all said vanity and showmanship is the number one important thing to President Trump. 
Uh, and here he is now in the waning moments of his presidency, and vanity and showmanship are still of the utmost importance to him, despite the crises that are inflicting his country as he is trying to pack up the White House, trying to have a, a flyover, trying to have you know some kind of uh, you know foreign dignitary style send off for the president. Uh, that is what is top of mind to him right now. Whether he gets this flyover, whether he gets this 21-gun salute, whether he gets anything uh, you know, at Joint Base Andrews tomorrow other than potentially a crowd of people, this is just another stain on the Trump uh, legacy where he has again put himself over the needs of the people who have relied on him most across the country. This is his final full day of office, and uh, there's a lot of speculation, Reggie. As the tradition with outgoing presidents often is to, is to issue pardons, uh, and uh, they've all done it at various times, some of them a lot of them, some of them just a few. Uh, we're told there's a list of about 100 different people on uh, the list that uh, I guess the Trump uh, folks are going to sign off, or well, the president himself will sign off on today. Uh, what's the speculation? I mean, the, 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 the talk, as you've been reporting over the last couple of days, is the Trump family might be on that list. Uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani has denied he's on the list, said he doesn't want a pardon, which probably means Trump told him he wasn't going to get one. Uh, but but what are you hearing about who might actually be included there? You know what? The, the list is kind of an endless list of names uh, from A to Z uh, for who may be on this list. You know, there are questions over whether or not members of the Trump family or Trump himself will be on that list. His uh, advisors have told him to steer clear of that because it would essentially own up to an admission of guilt that they've been trying to avoid for the last you know, whether it's several weeks, several months, or several years. There's a potential that someone like Steve Bannon could be on that list. There are potentials for people linked to the Trump organization that could be on that list. Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani pushing back, saying that he's not on it or he's taken no part in it. We also need to point out that members close, or people close to President Trump have been making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, by granting access to people to be able to ask for clemency. So, you know, people are monetizing off of what the president's you know constitutional duties are here when it comes to pardons who's on that list though that's really a wait and see moment uh and you know when that list is revealed you can imagine people are going to be pouring through it with a magnifying glass to see exactly who the people are because this is ultimately going to make news in president trump's final few hours Reggie Starr is uh, reporting today uh, that uh, there's some concern about even the National Guard uh, that are actually protecting not just the Capitol but the downtown area of Washington as well, uh, that uh, some of the uh, radical groups that actually stormed uh, the Capitol on the 6th of January might be infiltrating in some way, shape, or form some of the National Guard or posing as National Guard and other security officers. Uh, did you notice on the drive-in today, stepped-up security? Is there a concern about what might be happening there? Yeah, look, there is definitely security and you're right that reporting does exist that there's a fear that people will either pose as law enforcement officers or that these officers themselves will kind of ignore their constitute or their, their duties rather uh to protect and rather you know pledge to do to taking part which is why we're seeing this active vetting of these 25,000 troops because remember again they're from right across the country uh and this is where we're seeing local jurisdictions and police departments actively going through their own rosters to see if anyone had been involved with that January 6th riot that took place. So, uh, you know, law enforcement is being stepped up right now. And, you know, unlike what we saw with the protests last summer with these unidentifiable, uh, you know, random uh, forces and troops that were standing on the streets, badges are very visible right now. People are very communicative. Uh, there is no kind of secrecy uh, or cloak that a lot of these uh, law enforcement personnel are standing behind right now. And I think it's simply because there is such a fear that something could go wrong. And ultimately, this will come back to the Trump administration. 
Let's talk a little bit about Biden. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, and, and the inaugural speech, because uh, a lot of people, Reggie, as you know, talked about the Trump speech from four years ago, and the dark uh, picture that he painted about the devastation of America. It actually turned out to be his reality, I guess, over the last four years. Uh, but there have been some great moments in these inauguration speeches. You know, John Kennedy's uh, Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, There's Nothing Wrong With America That Can't Be Fixed By What's Right In America. Some very memorable lines. How important is Biden's speech and the message he's going to deliver tomorrow? Well, I mean, look, he's talking to a country that has been torn apart politically by one of the most divisive presidents in American history. You're right. When President Trump was up there four years ago talking about this death and destruction and carnage, it wound up being a crisis of his own creation uh, by kind of foreshadowing what was going to take place in his four year uh, four years. Uh, And Joe Biden is now going to be in a position of using this speech to try to mend together this politically torn apart country. He's also going to have to use this speech to give a glimmer of hope to Americans who have lost it because of the economic crisis, because of the health crisis, because uh, of uh, of the health care system, because of the security threats. There are an endless number of issues that Joe Biden is going to have to reach out and say, look, I'm going to do my best to try and bring you back to the America that we once were. Uh, It's going to be a difficult task for him. It's going to take him his four years. uh, And he's going to have a job now to not only uh, satisfy the people who voted for him, but to also reassure those who didn't vote for him that not only is his win legitimate, is his win certified, that he is going to work for all Americans. And that is something that Trump's base is not going to take easily because they've been you know, fed this repeatedly that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president uh, and he's not going to work for them. So this is an arduous task at the feet uh, of Joe Biden when he's giving that speech. Uh, just for the people that are going to be listening and watching, we're going to carry it, of course, uh, on Global uh, News and Radio, of course, tomorrow morning starting at 11 o'clock. Uh, traditionally, of course, it's the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who swears in the, the incoming president, and so Biden will take the oath with him. But interestingly, uh, the vice presidential oath uh, that Kamala Harris is going to take is going to be presided over by uh, Justice Sotomayor, who is the first woman of color uh, selected to the Supreme Court. So there's, there's going to be a lot of history tomorrow, isn't there? There is history, and this is, again, an administration that's actively trying to break down the barriers uh, that have existed in politics, especially in D.C., uh, for decades, if not centuries, by having the first woman, the first black woman, the first woman of South Asian descent, now sitting as the sitting vice president being sworn in uh, you know, by a female from the Supreme Court. Uh, this is what Joe Biden has been talking about when he says inclusivity is going to rise above exclusivity uh, because he wants this to be one America. He doesn't want to see these divisions that have existed for the last you know, X number of years. Uh, and he's got a task ahead of him to try and make sure that that's what happens. Well, uh, certainly high drama tomorrow, as there has been for the last couple of weeks, of course, in Washington, but also uh, a moment in history, too, uh, not soon to be forgotten. And uh, I know you'll be part of it and reporting it back to us, Reggie. As always, thanks so much for this. Stay safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent with Global News, uh, right there in downtown Washington, getting set for the inauguration. And as we mentioned, uh, we will have live coverage of the inauguration, well, starting about 24 hours from now, uh, starting at just about 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, and uh, carrying through with the uh, the ceremonies that are going to be happening on the Capitol steps. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.